welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories of the past week. The lead story today is, well, something that we all know, and that is the Earth is sizzling. Temperatures are soaring past 105 degrees in Europe and in the United States past 115 degrees. We see the imprint of global warming everywhere. Massive forest fires engulfing California. Lakes drying up like the Great Salt Lake and Lake Mead. People dying of dehydration. Crops are failing left and right. Just a few weeks ago, I was giving a lecture in Madrid, Spain, and people there, yes, they are melting due to the heat. 104 degrees just by taking a walk outside. So, this is a wake-up call, a call to action. However, let's be fair about this, the critics would say that, well, maybe it's just a minor fluctuation. Come wintertime, there could be massive snowstorms once again. And then it looks silly talking about global warming when it's snowing outside. Well, the point of view that we're taking is that global warming is an average effect. That on average, we see a line, nearly a straight line, uh, denoting the rise in temperatures around the planet Earth. And of course, there are going to be fluctuations. But look at the big picture. The Earth is heating up. And what are we going to do about it? Is this going to be the new normal? Every summer, another blisteringly hot season? Well, there is a dark horse out there. Of course, a lot of us are putting our bets on solar power, wind power, on uh, more efficient uh, use of energy, so on and so forth. However, there is a dark horse out there, and that is fusion power. Fusion power has been oversold, unfortunately, but in the next two years, the ITER fusion reactor in southern France will be turned on. In fact, two types of fusion reactors will be turned on perhaps in two years, and by 2030, we hope to have operational fusion reactors. Cross your fingers. In other words, is it too late? Well, we'll talk about that on exploration. Also in the news, artificial intelligence. When does your laptop computer all of a sudden become self-aware? This is something right out of a science fiction movie. But yes, there's an employee at Google who was recently fired. Fired by saying that the chat box that you see on your laptop or on a computer is sentient. That's right. We have a top computer programmer who was fired for saying it. But maybe chat box are self-aware. Is that true? Well, we'll talk about the pros and cons of that. If you've all seen the movie Terminator, you all know the consequences of what happens when robots become self-aware. When they become self-aware, then watch out, we go in the crosshairs. Also, all of us know that when we write the history of the 1960s, we talk about the race to the moon. Well, some people are now saying that there's going to be a race to Mars. Who would have thought that with private enterprise, billionaires and investors are putting their sights on the planet Mars. Not just one, but two, perhaps three groups are now aiming for the red planet. 
So we'll talk about the pros and cons of whether or not we can have private enterprise take us to Mars. And then the Omicron virus. Is the pandemic over? Well, just ask President Joe Biden. He came down with the Omicron virus. Nope, the pandemic is not over. Perhaps the worst of it is over, but we have to realize that there are constantly new versions of the virus as it mutates. In fact, Omicron virus is highly contagious, more contagious than all the previous versions of the virus, but perhaps it is not more lethal. And that is causing a certain amount of overconfidence. People are throwing away their masks. But come October, come October, some people are saying that maybe it's time to get a third booster shot. In other words, a total of not four, but five shots come October when a new vaccine is marketed which targets the Omicron virus. Well, let's just jump right into the top stories of the past week. The lead story this week is the lead story across the entire planet Earth, and that is the Earth is sizzling. Temperatures are soaring on perhaps all the continents of the planet Earth. In Europe, it's commonplace to see temperatures soar past 105 degrees. In the United States, in certain desert areas, 115 degrees has been recorded. And we see the effects of it everywhere. In California, once again, we see massive forest fires. Forest fires that are out of control. How much control do we have over some of these forest fires? Zero percent. Zero percent containment right now. Lakes are drying up. The Great Salt Lake, Lake Mead. Millions of people depend upon this water for drinking purposes, bathing purposes, and of course, for agriculture. Also, people are dying of dehydration. We see story after story of people that go hiking, thinking it's going to be a nice sunny day, only to run out of water and eventually die of dehydration. Crops are failing. If you are a farmer, you're worried about the fact that perhaps you're not going to be able to market the grains because the temperatures are so hot. Now, I was in Madrid, Spain, just a few weeks ago, and yes, the people there are melting due to the heat. Average temperature back then, 104 degrees. Records are being broken like pie crusts. However, we should also point out that there are some critics of global warming, and they say that, well, yeah, things are bad outside, but it's a fluctuation, a minor fluctuation, and come wintertime, we could have massive snowstorms and then all these naysayers will look kind of stupid with all the snow on the ground. Well, there's some truth to that in the sense that, yes, the weather oscillates. The weather has anomalies. You just can't look at one storm or one event and say, aha, that's the major trend. You have to look at the average. But when you look at the average, when you plot the average temperatures around the Earth, season for season, year for year, you come to the stunning conclusion that, yes, the Earth is heating up, and this is already affecting agriculture, people's space safety, drinking water, you name it, the Earth is heating up. And the next question is, what are we going to do about it? Is this the new normal that every year average temperatures climb? Is this what we're going to have to adjust for? Well, let's hope that the electric car 
that solar power, wind power. Let's hope that renewable technologies kick in. But just remember that there is a dark horse out there. Some physicists are placing their bets on something called fusion power. Now, fusion power, to be honest, has been oversold. If you look at any science fiction movie, all the people of the future use fusion power as a clean source of energy. But after so many decades of promising fusion power, it never materialized. Well, physicists now believe that we could be turning the corner on this. In two years, the ITER fusion reactor in southern France will be turned on. It's being backed by almost all the advanced industrialized nations. And we hope that we're going to put the sun in a bottle. That is, heat sun, heat plasma to tens to hundreds of millions of degrees to the point where hydrogen gas fuses to create helium plus energy. That is the energy source of the stars. E equals mc squared. M is the mass of hydrogen. C is the speed of light, and you square it, giving you an incredibly large number. And E is the energy that you can derive from this whole process. By 2030, we hope to have an operational fusion reactor. And by 2050, it could be commonplace. But then the next question is, is that too late? I mean, 2030, 2050, what's the average temperature of the Earth going to look like when we start to cross threshold after threshold. Well, keep your fingers hop, crossed, and let's hope that we did not oversell fusion power just like we oversold it 20 years ago. Also in the news, is it possible that robots can become self-aware? Well, this is straight out of the movies, but now we have a Google employee who is fired for saying exactly that that the chatbot that you talk to, you chat with on your laptop computer, he says is sentient. He says the chatbot, in some sense, is alive. It is self-aware. Now, this is something straight out of a Hollywood science fiction movie. Remember the movie Terminator? In that movie, there was something called Skynet, which was this gigantic planetary internet. And one day... Skynet became self-aware. It became aware that it is a creation that has its own destiny in its own hands. Well, the military is frightened by this, tries to shut it off. But Skynet is smart. It outwits the humans and eventually unleashes a nuclear war to get rid of this nuisance called humanity. And that became the basis of a franchise, the Terminator franchise. And now we have somebody at Google saying that, well, maybe we're seeing the first stages in this process. Is that really true? Are we at the point where we have chatbots that talk to you, can become a pal in some sense, but are really self-aware? Well, let's back up a few steps. First of all, is there a definition of self-awareness, of consciousness? And the answer is no. Nobody has come up with a firm definition of, of sentience and self-awareness, but we can at least write down some attributes, attributes of what it means to be self-aware. 
First of all, if you are self-aware, you are aware of the fact that you are a creation, that you didn't come from the sky. You are, in fact, a robot. A robot is different from a human being. Now, when you talk to a chat box, it's very easy to get fooled into thinking that it is sentient. First of all, what kind of vocabulary do you have to have? When you gossip with your friend, believe it or not, when you gossip with your pals, you only need a few hundred words, just a few hundred words, and you can carry on a fairly intelligent conversation with somebody. This means that it's very easy to fool people because if you start to use slang, if you start to use abbreviations, if you start to use phrases that are commonplace but hip, then it sounds human. And it's very easy to fool somebody, even if the chat box only has a vocabulary of a few hundred words. Now, of course, an educated person has a vocabulary of a few thousand words. But then the question is, what happens when robots attain that level of sophistication? Well, some people think that beyond self-awareness, robots have to be self-programming. That is, they have to have a will of their own. They have to make their own agenda. They have to plan. They have to scheme on their own, independent of humans. Now, when you talk to a chat box on your computer, there's no indication that the chat box is scheming, that it is self-programming, that it is writing codes because it wants to carry out a plan, like take over from Homo sapiens. There's no indication that that is happening. And so I think it's very easy to get fooled by talking to a chat box because the chat box will use slang. It'll use common expressions that are hip. And as a consequence, it really does sound like it's real. Now, of course, there is a point at which robots may, in fact, become self-aware. Let's compare robots to animals. Let's take our most advanced military robot and compare it to an animal and put this animal in the forest. Well, if you take our most advanced robot and put it in a forest, what does it do? Well, basically it falls over, winds up on its back, and flails about and gets lost and just sets, sits there in the swamp. Well, that's what happens when you put a military robot in a forest or a swamp. However, if you put a cockroach, a cockroach in a forest, it very rapidly sizes things up. It finds food, it finds mates, it finds shelter. It's perfectly comfortable living in the forest. Well, our poor military robot is flailing upside down. However, it's only a matter of time before our robots become smarter than that, become as smart as a mouse, and then as smart as a rat, and then as smart as a rabbit, and then as smart as a dog or a cat, and finally as smart as a monkey. At that point, who knows when, perhaps by the end of the century, at that point, robots can indeed be dangerous. Because you see, monkeys are self-aware. They know they are not human. They know that they are different from humanity and they're self-programming. They can create their own agenda. If they feel like doing X, Y, Z, they say, okay, I'll plan and I'll scheme so that I can attain X, Y, Z. So monkeys can plan their self-programming. And however, when you take a look at a dog, well, you see, dogs are confused. 
Dogs think that we are a dog. They are the underdog. We are the top dog. And as a consequence, if they think we are a dog, then there's no self-awareness. There's no awareness that they are different from us. So I think that dogs, in a sense, are confused, but monkeys are not. So the conclusion is, perhaps by the end of the century, we will have robots that are, in fact, self-aware and self-programming. At that point, yes, they can be dangerous because they now can plot, create new scenarios, create agendas, plans, independent of humans. Now, that is not your chat box. Your chat box can basically gossip with you using slang, but that's pretty much it, okay? But, like I said, it's only a matter of time before robots become self-aware and self-programming. And at that point, I think we should shut them off if they have murderous thoughts. However, sooner or later, robots, maybe 200 years from now, will have the ability to evade and go around any fail-safe system. Then we're in deep trouble. At that point, I think we should entertain the possibility of merging with them. Why always see robots as a competitor? Why not merge with them? Why not become superhuman? This, of course, is way in the future. This is not something that we can democratically vote on. But I think people of the future, who knows, perhaps 200 years from now, will vote. And perhaps some of them will vote to be enhanced, to merge with our creation, rather than constantly try to fight them off. And who would have thought that one day we would have a race to Mars? Well, of course, history books know that the 1960s was typified by the space race, by the race to the moon. That typified much of the direction of science in the 1960s, a race to the moon. Well, now we have a potential race to Mars. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that one day the cost of space travel would drop, drop to the point where we might actually have a race to the planet Mars? Well, that's emerging. First of all, the front runner is Elon Musk's SpaceX. He already has a rocket ship called Starship, and that rocket ship is being tested to go to Mars. And so he already has that uh, on the books. Then we have NASA, of course. NASA wants to go to the moon first, and wants, they want to create a satellite that goes around the moon, a space station from which you can build a Mars rocket. So that's another contender. But now we have a third contender to go to the moon. And this is a group, a new upshot called Relativity Space. And they want to take as many shortcuts as possible, like using a computer printer to print out the rocket parts so that they can go to the red planet. So we have not one, not two, but three possible versions of a Mars rocket. The latest one, as I said, is being built by uh, Relativity Space, and they're using computer printers. Now, computer printers, of course, can be used to design all sorts of toys, machine parts, jewelry, right there on your desktop. But now, Relativity Space says that if you, you could use computer printers to print out mechanical parts for a toy, for an engine, or whatever, why not a rocket? A Mars rocket. It would be cheap. 
you can mass produce it. You don't have to have all these moving parts. You can reduce the number of moving parts because you can computer design all the different components. It would be streamlined. It would be cheap. You can mass produce it by simply pushing a button and no humans required. Some parts in a liquid fuel rocket, for example, require humans to machine the parts. Why bother if you have a computer printer? Now, what are the downsides of this? The downside, of course, is this is highly experimental. We have yet to launch a major ICBM that was designed and printed out inside the memory of a computer, but it's possible. So some people say that space travel and Morris travel is going through three stages. Think of the railroads. Think of the airplanes. In stage one, the railroads were used mainly to haul cargo, lumber, military equipment. It was the governments and big corporations that used transportation in stage one. Stage two, the cost of transportation went down so much that wealthy people began to say, hey, why not have a luxury liner? Only rich people could afford to buy tickets on this luxury liner, but why not? Well, that's stage two. Stage three is when the cost of transportation drops to the point where even the average person can get on board, then, hey, this is simply something for mom and dad and the whole family. Well, of course, in the 1960s, we were in stage one. Only Russia and the United States had the infrastructure necessary to send rockets to Mars and to the planets. Well, now we have stage two, where billionaires from Amazon, billionaires from SpaceX, now have the capability of designing rockets that, that wealthy people can buy tickets to. We're in stage two. Eventually, we'll be in stage three. Who knows? Maybe in stage three, when you honeymoon, maybe you'll honeymoon on the moon. That's a distinct possibility. To go to the moon only takes about three days. That's a hop, skip, and a jump. Now, Mars is different. Mars is a lot farther away. To go to Mars takes about nine months on a one-way trip. Then you have to wait for the planets to align for the return trip, and that's another nine months. So in other words, a two-year commitment, a two-year commitment if you want to go to Mars. And like I said before, we have not one, not two, but three groups. Three groups that say that they will be the first to put humans on the red planet. Well, we'll have to wait and see about this. And lastly, let me say a few things about the coronavirus. You know, there's a big temptation to throw away those masks, to live life like it should be lived, without having all the dangers of a virus hiding behind corners, jumping out at you. Why not have life back to normal again? Well, is that a dream? Yes. Is it attainable? Yes. But do we have it? No. It turns out that the Omicron, the Omicron virus, especially BA5, turned out to be a lot more elusive than we thought. First of all, evolution is at work. The virus is evolving, just the way Darwin said things will evolve. Now, it turns out that as people get vaccinated, it's harder and harder for the coronavirus to infect people. And as people get the virus itself, 
Again, they build up a certain amount of immunity. Therefore, the virus has to mutate or die. It has to mutate because people are more and more resistant to the virus. And therefore, the virus has to be such that it can spread more rapidly. It has to be more infectious. So evolution favors the infectious virus. And that's what's happening. Omicron is more infectious than all the other versions put together. But if you have a virus which is too lethal, that means you can kill a lot of people, and therefore you have less room to grow and evolve. So in other words, viruses do not necessarily want to become more lethal. They want to become more infectious so they can spread their, their genes, but they don't necessarily want to be more lethal because there are fewer people to infect. And so what happens to the virus? Well, not always, but sometimes they become less lethal. Now, some people think that's what happened to the flu. Take a look at the Spanish flu of World War I. That flu killed more people than World War I. It was a tremendous affliction of the human race, people dying left and right in the prime of their life. But it went away, or did it? Some people think that the Spanish flu virus is still with us, except it's mutated. It's mutated to become more infectious, but less lethal. And that's what we have now. That's why you get your seasonal flu shot, say some people. And the upshot of this is maybe, just maybe, the coronavirus will also follow this basic path to become more infectious but less lethal. More infectious so that it can spread its genes to more individuals, but less lethal because you have, uh, you don't want to kill the people that you want to infect you won't have them survive so you can infect them again. And this means that, who knows for sure, we may live with it like we live with the flu vaccine. Every year, we go to the doctor and get a flu shot. This may be part of our life in the future. In other words, we may simply live with it. Now, that doesn't mean we should throw away our masks, because who knows, the virus is still mutating. It's mutating faster than we expected, and it's mutating in ways that make it more infectious, and so it's going to be around. In fact, some officials of the CDC have now admitted it could be around forever. That's right, forever. Some of them are now saying the dirty word forever. That is, we may never have complete control over this virus. It simply mutates its way out of every trap. Every time we think we got it, it mutates and evades our detection. So every time we think we got it, it mutates and escapes the trap. Now, this means that in the future, our grandkids, our grandkids may also be living with the coronavirus. It may just be another fact of life that you have to take your annual coronavirus shot, just like you take your annual flu shot. It's something that we have to pay because we are up against something that mutates, something that improves itself. It's not sentient by any means, but it, it almost acts as if it had a mind of its own.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of Exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. If you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I've written five New York Times bestsellers, and I have five million fans on Facebook. And my latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So stay tuned now as we bring on our guest, Dr. Robert Zubrin, founder of the Mars Society, talking about the exploration of the red planet. Is there a new space race? This time to go to Mars. Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. In the second half of Exploration, we're going to continue a discussion of Mars. Is there a new space race that's emerging? As we mentioned before, back in the 1960s, we had the space race between the Soviet Union and the United States. That was the first phase of the exploration of space, when gigantic superpowers in the military were able to establish a beachhead in outer space. Now we're entering phase two of the exploration of outer space, where the superpowers are no longer driving this race. This race is being driven by billionaires, by private enterprise, by scientists and engineers who have a vision for the exploration of outer space. This is the second era, and in the second era we have not one, not two, but three different groups competing for the honor of being the first to put people on the red planet. First, we have Elon Musk and SpaceX. They're perhaps the leading contenders. They have a rocket ship called the Starship. And this rocket ship is not just to go to Mars. It's an interplanetary rocket ship that will hopefully take astronauts throughout the entire solar system. Talk about thinking big. So Elon Musk and his starship have a vision, and that vision is to colonize the solar system, not just the planet Mars. Then we have contender number two, NASA. NASA wants to first go back to the moon and then use that to go on to Mars. So in the next few years, we'll send a rocket that'll go around the moon, an unmanned rocket, then people will begin the process of landing on the moon and building a space station called the Gateway. The space station will be built to orbit around the moon. And from the Gateway, they hope to build the rocket ship that'll go to Mars. So it's a one-two punch. First, go back to the moon, create a moon base that orbits around the moon. From that, build a Mars ship that'll take you to Mars. And then we have contender number three, just entering the race to go to Mars recently. Relativity Space is a pioneering organization that wants to use computer printers 
computer printers to print out booster rockets. Think about that. In other words, already you can print out toys, machine parts, jewelry, simple things on a laser printer. But why not replace laser light with molten metal? Then you have a computer printer that can print booster rockets. You can reduce the cost, reduce the number of parts, increase efficiency, and that's the hope of Relativity Space, a late entry in the race to go to Mars. They envision rockets coming off the assembly line, assembled not by human hands, assembled by computers as the cheapest, most efficient way to explore outer space. Well, with us today in the second half of exploration to talk about the exploration of space is Robert Zubrin, founder of the Mars Society, a leading advocate of the quest to explore the Red Planet. Now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're delighted to have with us Dr. Robert Zubrin. He's an aerospace engineer and author of several books, including The Case for Mars and Mars on Earth. That's right. We're talking about President George W. Bush's Mars Initiative, and the question is, should we send humans to the planet Mars? Some people say it's too dangerous, it's too expensive, and there are other priorities. Other people say, let's go for it. So once again, our special guest today is Dr. Robert Zubrin, author of the book Case for Mars, founder of the Mars Society, and we are talking about whether or not we should put humans on the red planet. The first question for you, Dr. Zubrin, is how did you first get interested in science? Well, actually, it was Sputnik. I was five years old at the time, and I was already reading science fiction. And uh, while to the adult world, Sputnik was a terrifying event, uh, or so I'm told, uh, to me anyway, it was exhilarating, because uh, what it meant was that all these stories I was reading about the spacefaring future were going to become real. And um, uh, I wanted to be part of it. And so I dug into every science book I could find, and you know, my father got me a telescope when I was seven, and, you know, Kennedy gave his speech committing us to the moon when I was nine. And, you know, during my teen years, we were moving out. We landed on the moon when I was 17. And um, there was a great adventure underway, and I wanted to be part of that. I, I think if we were to have a Humans to Mars program today, it would encourage millions of people today to want to uh, enter science. And I understand you were an aerospace engineer for a while. Could you elaborate? And then how did you go about finding the Mars Society? Well, I still am an aerospace engineer. That's what I do for a living. Uh, I used to work for Martin Marietta and then Lockheed Martin, and then I founded my own company, Pioneer Astronautics, uh, which does uh, technology research and development on contract for NASA and the Air Force. Um, and that's how my source of income. Um, and that's my professional preoccupation. I, I don't get any money from the Mars Society. But uh, the Mars Society was founded um, by me and a number of other people who for a long time had believed that uh, the American space coal needs 
the American space program needs a goal, and humans to Mars should be that goal, um, both for scientific reasons and uh, for inspirational reasons and for societal reasons. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wrote a book called The Case for Mars in 1996. I got 4,000 letters from people who read it from all over the world asking me all kinds of things, but basically asking, how do we make this happen? And when I showed this to the other folks in what was then called the Mars Underground, we decided the time had come to pull all this talent together and form an organization so that uh, there would be a force in being that could actually try to make humans to Mars happen. Okay, well, let's talk about Mars as a planet and also Mars from science fiction. Uh, if you read all science fiction novels, they do say that Mars is a desert, but they said that this is a desert populated by Tharks and Martians and all sorts of different denizens and aliens. So first of all, tell us a little bit about the geology and atmosphere of Mars. Okay, well, Mars is uh, a desert today, uh, although as we're now learning, it wasn't always so. Uh, it's a frozen desert. It's a polar desert, uh, like what we have in the Canadian Arctic. And in fact, the Mars Society has built a Mars station in the Canadian Arctic to learn how to explore these kinds of environments. Uh, it's unlikely that there's life on the Martian surface today, but we can identify places on Mars. And of course, the news this week is that we have identified for sure places on the surface of Mars that were once warm and wet, and that could have supported life. And that makes Mars really the Rosetta Stone for letting us know whether the conjecture that life originates as a natural development of complexity from chemistry, wherever it has an a, a acceptable environment, whether that is true or not. Uh, if that's true, then life is plentiful in the universe. If it's not true, if there's an element of miraculous chance involved in forming these DNAs and RNAs and all these other very complex molecules, then we could be alone. And Mars is the critical test that's going to let us find out by looking for fossils on the surface of Mars and by drilling down into the ground and reaching groundwater where there might still be extant Martian life today. Okay, well, for those people who saw Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Total Recall, they know a little bit about Martian ecology. It's very cold up there, and the atmosphere is very thin. Yeah. And so the question is, what would it take for an astronaut to, to live on Mars, given the fact that it's cold, the atmosphere is like 1% of the atmospheric pressure of the Earth, and there are huge sandstorms uh, on Mars. So tell us a little bit about what it would like to live on Mars. Okay. Well, uh, as you point out, the atmospheric pressure on Mars is much too low to allow an unprotected human to walk around on the Martian surface today. So you would have to wear a spacesuit when you went outside. When you're inside, you could be inside of your habitat module, uh, which are like big tuna cans. Uh, with life support systems in them, and you would live in them in a, in a shirt-sleeve environment. Uh, it's uh, Actually, the temperature extremes on Mars are worse than the Earth, but uh, much less uh, bad than the moon. Uh, actually, on Mars, in the middle of the day, it gets to about 50 Fahrenheit. At night, it might go down to minus 130, so probably be a good idea to stay inside at night. Um, the, uh, sand, the, the dust storms on Mars... Uh, occur periodically, but actually because the Martian air is so thin, they, these uh, high winds up to 100 miles an hour don't have that much dynamic pressure. The 100-mile-an-hour wind on Mars has about the same force as the 10-mile-an-hour wind on Earth. So they're not really a threat except if, if they're happening while you're landing, and then you have a big parachute out, which could be um, seized by such uh, wind. But if you're on the ground, uh, you could weather them quite easily. And the Viking landers weathered many uh, dust storms without any difficulty at all. 
And I understand the gravity is weaker and the day. The day is about similar to a day on the Earth. So tell us a little bit about what it would be like in terms of the day, the seasons, and the gravity on Mars. Well, the gravity on Mars is 38% that of Earth. So if you weighed, um, uh, you know, 100 pounds, you'd weigh on Earth, you'd weigh 38 pounds on Mars. Um, so that's an advantage. It means that if you're walking around with a big, heavy spacesuit, let's say you weighed 150 pounds and your spacesuit weighs 200 pounds on Earth, you wouldn't be able to walk around in that on Earth. But on Mars, okay, the total mass is 350 pounds, and it would only feel like about 110 pounds. So you would actually feel lighter uh, on Mars, even wearing that spacesuit, than you would if you were on Earth naked. Uh, so that's an advantage. The day is 24 hours, 37 minutes long. So it's really just like an Earth day. Uh, people can adapt to that uh, quite easily. Um, and it's, it's all one of the things that make Mars attractive for settlement because you could grow plants in greenhouses lit by natural sunlight since the diurnal cycle of, of light and dark would be very similar to Earth. This is, for instance, not the case on the moon where you have a 14 days of light and 14 days of dark at a time, which is unacceptable to most plants. Okay, and also tell us a little bit about the water. You said that Mars once upon a time had flowing rivers and perhaps even an ocean, mm -hmm. but what happened? Well, um, it's not completely clear what happened, but the dominant theory is as follows. Okay, that Mars in its early history was warm and wet because it had a thick CO2 atmosphere which made a very strong greenhouse effect on the planet. You know, people are talking about global warming on the Earth due to CO2 emissions from industry. Well, um, and that can warm a planet because CO2 traps heat. On Mars, you had a much thicker CO2 atmosphere, so much so that even though the planet was farther away from the sun than the Earth, it was still warm enough for liquid water. So a greenhouse effect, bad on Earth, but good on Mars. Now, the problem, though, with Mars is that the planet is too small for plate tectonics. And the reason why this is an issue is the following, that when you have rain, as you did in the early uh, Mars, and you do on Earth, of course, CO2 dissolves readily in water. It gets taken down by the rainwater into the ground where it reacts readily with rocks to form carbonates. Now, on Earth, those carbonates are recycled back into the atmosphere through the uh, motion of, of, of the geology, through plate tectonics that melts all rocks on time scales of around 100 million years and returns the CO2 back into the biosphere. On Mars, once the stuff gets locked up as carbonates, it's pretty much locked up. So the CO2 atmosphere on Mars started to thin out over time. Now, as it thinned out over time, Mars started to cool because the greenhouse effect got weaker. And when it reaches a certain low temperature, then uh, soil has the capacity to sponge in CO2 adsorption is what it's called. And once absorption begins, that thins out the atmosphere much more rapidly than carbonate formation, and you get a runaway icebox effect, where the more CO2 is absorbed, the colder it gets, the colder it gets, the more is absorbed, and wham, the whole planet freezes up. And it's been in deep freeze now for perhaps 3 billion years. Dr. Zubrin, some scientists have said that there is the potential of creating an artificial greenhouse effect on the red planet, which would then raise the temperatures on Mars. Could you elaborate? Um, now, someday, human ex uh, settlers on Mars, uh, when there's enough of them and they have enough industrial capability, could conceivably set up factories on Mars for producing artificial greenhouse gases like fluorocarbons, 
You don't want to do chlorofluorocarbons because they destroy ozone, but fluorocarbons don't destroy ozone, and, uh, but they're very powerful greenhouse gases. And if you produce them and you warm the planet up around 10 degrees C through your own efforts, that would warm the planet enough that CO2 without gas out of the soil and start adding to your greenhouse effect, and we could raise the planet by 50 degrees centigrade. We could create a Mars whose um, tropical regions were tropical and in which there's liquid water on the surface again. And, and while you couldn't breathe that atmosphere because it would be almost all CO2, plants could, and you could put plants on the ground outside. There'd be rain. Uh, there'd be water cycling, and uh, you could start to green Mars. It'd be a tremendous accomplishment of positive environmental engineering. Okay. Well, also, tell us what about the ice caps of Mars. Some people think that some of the water uh, snowed on the ice caps. Other people think that the water is still there underground in the permafrost. Uh, well, could you elaborate? Yes. Well, there is water on Mars, and uh, almost undoubtedly in both of those locations. We can see the northern polar ice cap on Mars is water ice. And it looks like um, people thought the southern ice cap might have been mostly CO2 ice, but uh, measurements that we've taken from our orbiters indicate that it's at least 60% water ice as well, and possibly all water ice. Um, the, and then we can see geologic features that look like water bursting out of the sides of craters in the geologically recent period, which means there has to be subsurface aquifers of liquid water that occasionally break loose. Um, and uh, so that's one reason why you really want to send human explorers to Mars, because if we're going to find life on Mars, actual living organisms, not just fossils, we're going to have to set up drilling rigs and reach that groundwater. Then you want to take that water into your habitat on Mars, throw it into bacterial culture medium, see if anything grows. If it does, image it in your microscopes, test it with biochemical testing um, see what it's like, see if it mimics the biochemistry of Earth life or if it's something different. This is something we really want to know. We really want to know if all life as it is in the universe is the same as Earth life, since all Earth life is biochemically the same. We all use the same amino acids and the same RNA and DNA method of transmitting information. Or are there other methods of creating life? Um, so this is uh, one of the fundamental questions in science today, and the way we're going to resolve it is by going to Mars. Well, we don't see any liquid water on Mars today, but some people think that perhaps there could be underground geysers or underground hot springs uh, due to volcanic activity, in which case there could be pockets of liquid water even today. But what are your thoughts? Well, um, as I said, uh, the geomorphological evidence is that there is underground liquid water on Mars today because um, the Mars Global Surveyor Orbiter uh, took pictures from orbit and that showed uh, channels that had been cut out from the sides of craters from water bursting out from the side, and these things are totally uncratered themselves, which means they happened in the past few million years, which is basically, from the geological point of view, today. So uh, if water could burst out of the side of a crater four million years ago, it could do it tomorrow. And that means there has to be liquid water underground on Mars now. Okay, now let's talk about the robotic exploration of Mars. Some scientists have called Mars the death planet because so many Mars missions have failed. However, we now have uh, rovers on the surface of Mars uh, looking at rock formations. What have they found specifically that has excited the imagination of scientists, the two rovers on Mars? Okay, well, let me just point out um, that 12 out of 16 American spacecraft sent to Mars have succeeded. Okay, four out of five of our landers have succeeded. 
The reason why the Mars statistics are, are so low is because the Russians sent 14 spacecraft to Mars and all of theirs failed. But in terms of our own record with regard to Mars, uh, we're batting around 700. Um, now, uh, what have we found? Okay, well, from orbit, we have found uh, water erosion features all over the place, dry riverbeds, dry lake beds, uh, what looks like perhaps the basin of a dried-up northern ocean. Um, on the ground, um, what we just found this week is that these water features were not created by water that was just there in some flash floods that lasted an afternoon and then the water was gone, uh, which is what some people had been uh, suggesting. But rather, this water was there for a long period of time. We, we found what the Opportunity rover has found are what's called evaporites, that is, um, residues left when water evaporates and the salt in the water and the sulfates in the water have been left behind. This requires standing bodies of water that exist for long periods of time and stay in place long enough for the water to evaporate away. And um, so um, what's, what's very conclusive, what we've learned from these robots, is there have been places on Mars where life could have developed. And now the key question is, did it? Okay. Now let's talk about the practical implications of sending men to Mars, as advocated by President George W. Bush. Uh, first of all, let me play devil's advocate. Let's talk about cost. We know we could do it. We just put enough money into it, throw money at it, and we could put men on Mars. Uh, George Bush Sr., when he proposed a manned mission to Mars, uh, numbers that were being thrown out were on the order of $500 billion. What do you think it would cost under your program to put men on Mars? I think we could have people on Mars within 10 years for 40 to $50 billion. Uh, the, the issue here is uh, actually constraining the problem in the way President Kennedy did uh, with Apollo, where you put a timeline on it and you say you've got to do this within a decade. And so you don't just launch a plethora of programs and say, well, you know, this might be useful for someday in the future when people go to the moon or, or to Mars, and this might be useful. Instead, you sit down, you design an end-to-end plan for how to do it, you design a coherent set of hardware elements to implement that plan, you develop those hardware elements and the associated technologies and no others, you build them, and you fly the mission. If you do that, you can be on Mars in a decade. If you don't do that, you can spend any amount of money you like, and you can spend decade after decade, and you'll have no progress at all. And this is the difference between the NASA of the Apollo period, of the basically from 61 to 73, and the NASA of the three decades since. It, it may startle people to learn that NASA's budget this year is something like 94% of what its average budget was during the Apollo period in real inflation-adjusted dollars. That is, the average Apollo period budget in today's money was $17 billion a year, NASA's budget this year is $16 billion. And we've spent as much money in NASA between 1990 and today as we did between 61 and 73. But in that earlier period, we developed all the space technologies we have and that we use, and we sent people to the moon, and we sent 40 lunar and planetary probes out. In the period between 1990 and today, we developed no new space technologies. We did not fly anyone to the moon um, or anywhere like that, and we flew maybe, what, seven or eight planetary probes. So um, when you actually have a goal and you force the organization to address that goal rather than use that goal as a rationale for doing whatever it pleases to do, 
um, except for the goal, um, you can really accomplish something. Okay. Now, one of your plans, which is controversial, is to give our astronauts a one-way ticket to Mars, have them develop rocket fuel themselves for the return trip. So tell us a little bit about how that is done in order to reduce costs. Okay. This is known as the Mars Direct Plan, and it's explained at length in my book, The Case for Mars. The way this works is you do this mission with two launches of a heavy lift launch vehicle of equal capability to the Saturn V moon rockets that we used in the 60s. The first rocket shoots to Mars an Earth return vehicle with no one in it. Now that goes out and that lands on Mars. Then you run a pump and you suck in the Martian air, which is mostly carbon dioxide gas. You react that carbon dioxide with a small amount of hydrogen that you brought from Earth to produce a large supply of methane oxygen rocket propellant. So now you have a fully fueled Earth return vehicle sitting, waiting for you on the surface of Mars. Once that is done, then you launch the crew out to Mars with the second rocket. Okay? Now, because the return ride is waiting for them on the surface of Mars, they don't need to fly to Mars in a gigantic Battlestar Galactica spaceship that nobody knows how to build. Okay? They can just fly to Mars in a basic habitation module, like a big tuna can, flies out to Mars. It takes six months to get to Mars with chemical propulsion. We do not need nuclear propulsion to get to Mars in six months. Mars Odyssey did it in, nine, in 2001 in, in six months. We can get there right now with, with this. We go to Mars. We land near the Earth return vehicle. We use the same habitat that we used as our ship to go to Mars to be our house on Mars for a year and a half while we explore the planet. And then at the end of that time, we get in the Earth return vehicle and we fly back to Earth. We leave the habitat behind on Mars. So each time you do this, you add another habitat to the base. And before long, you've built up the beginning of the first human settlement on a new world. There is nothing in this that is beyond our technology. And I might add that the risk associated with this plan is much lower than that of the conventional mission. Because the conventional mission involves extremely complex on-orbit assembly of mega spacecraft, which has much lower quality control than you can ever have on the ground at the Cape, integrating the much smaller spacecraft that are required for this mission. And furthermore, the return vehicle has already been landed on Mars before you leave Earth, and that's actually safer than the conventional mission in which you attempt to land on Mars in the vehicle that you hope to take off from. In other words, here you know before you've even left Earth that you already have an ascent vehicle that has survived the trauma of landing on Mars. In the other mission plan, you don't. So... This plan is doable with our technology. It's much less costly than the standard plan. It's much less risky than the standard plan. Uh, it accomplishes a lot more science than the standard plan because all the crew is on Mars. No one is left in orbit. Um, and uh, we've got the technology to do it. So all it takes is some vision, some guts, and a little bit of moxie. Okay. Well, I was watching uh, CNN television the other day, and the commentator said, well, the Mars rover is going on Mars. But what did it find? Rocks. Rocks, rocks, and more rocks. And what he was implying, therefore, is that there's really not a pot of gold out there. There's really no reason to spend any more money on the mission to Mars. So let me ask you a question. What are the economic benefits? Why go to Mars if it's an enormous amount of money for a goal that is a little bit uh, dubious? Well, the goal is not dubious at all. And saying there's nothing on Mars but rocks is like saying... In 1600, there's nothing in North America but trees and animals. I mean, the, the, you know, it's an extremely uh, anti-intellectual and uh, stupid uh, statement. 
what there is on Mars is a world. It is a planet with a surface area equal to all the continents of the Earth put together. And it has on it all the resources needed to support life and therefore potentially human civilization. And if we can go to Mars and develop the technology that allow human beings to be self-sufficient in this environment, as you know, previous generations of our ancestors, starting from those who left Africa to take on Ice Age Europe, did, human beings have used their creativity to master environments that were previously considered uninhabitable. If we can do this, then we can create the conditions whereby new branches of human civilization can develop on Mars. 500 years from now, if we do this, and people look back on our time, okay, they will consider this the most important thing we have done. No one 500 years from now will remember who was in power in Iraq or Bosnia. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, and if you want to know more about exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, or go to Facebook. I have 5 million fans on Facebook. And if you want to know more about my work, try some of the New York Times bestsellers that I've written. I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest one is called The God Equation. The Quest for a Theory of Everything. So stay tuned for exploration every week on this radio show.